Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. Tonight, we remember the legacy of Joseph Ratzinger, the Pope Emeritus, and we'll analyze the funeral in a way not yet done on television. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get right to it. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, of course, died this week at the age of 95 at his monastery residence in the Vatican Gardens. Benedict's health began to deteriorate at the end of December. He had been suffering aggravated kidney failure, and he went to his eternal reward on New Year's Eve. It was the reluctant pope and the first to resign in over 600 years. Of course, that shocked the world in 2013. To discuss this landmark pontificate, his years of retirement, and the legacy of Benedict XVI, I'm pleased to be joined by the papal posse. Editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, Robert Royal, canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray. Gents, before we get started and dive in, I want to quickly go to Rome, where Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register, Edward Penton, is standing by. Ed, thank you for joining us. Tell me about this abbreviated funeral we saw for Pope Benedict. Um, as one cardinal described it to me, he, he said it was a deliberately cut-back affair. From television, it looked like it was a mass for mostly priests and a handful of dignitaries. Yes, I mean, it wasn't, uh, of course, the, the normal papal funeral. The, the argument was that because Benedict uh, resigned, you know, he wasn't pope when he died, uh, he wouldn't get a full papal funeral. Um, but it, there were some... Uh, incongruities in there because it, you know, he was uh, somebody who loved the liturgy, the traditional liturgy particularly, and yet there was no Roman canon in the Mass. So the first time apparently since the 6th century that a, a funeral for a, for a pontiff hasn't had it. Uh, and various other things which seem to be um, perhaps not of his, of his uh, desires. And I did ask uh, Matteo Bruni this, this Vatican spokesman, but he said the, the point of departure for the whole uh, funeral was what do we do for a, a pope who, who resigned, uh, what is the sort of uh, the, the, the protocols for, that, for such a funeral? And we took everything mm. from there. So I pressed him whether, you know, the wishes of Benedict were taken into account, but he, he didn't give a clear answer. Uh, but it does seem as though most of them were, but, uh, but not all of them, it seems. Yeah, it seemed like Pope Francis wanted to make it plain that Benedict was clearly not the pope and should not be accorded the same honor to a sitting pontiff. Still... Hundreds of thousands of mourners, Ed, filed past Benedict's body as it lay in state. And I'm told the crowd and turnout took the Vatican by surprise. Um, d d let me ask this question, because I've gotten tons of emails, texts. When I was on Fox the other day during their live coverage, it was a constant inbox in in question. Did Benedict actually say he wanted no foreign heads of state to attend his funeral mass? Well, this is the question. We don't know, and the, and the Vatican isn't being straightforward about this. Uh, I think they, their argument, as I say, is that the point of departure is that it's it's a funeral for a, a resigned pontiff, an abdicated pontiff, and so uh, they can say, well, you know, it's not going to have all the all the trappings of a of a, a mass for a reigning pontiff. And of course, that means mm -hmm. that um, for them, that means that they won't be official um, delegations, and there are only two, in fact, from. Uh, Germany and Italy. So all the others came on a personal basis, uh, not that they were invited to come at, a, at an official level. 
Well, one of our EWTN colleagues at the White House asked Joe Biden about this the other day, why he wasn't going. He almost slipped. He said, well, you know why I didn't go. They told me, and then he cut himself off. He caught himself. But it's clear, and I've, I've spoken to several uh, embassies, I won't say who or what, uh, but they've told me the Vatican communicated to them that they were not to send heads of state. So they downplayed this. I mean, the very idea that, that Pope Benedict may have said, I want a simple ceremony, doesn't mean he wanted an insignificant one. And I think they may have gone a bit too far here in trying to constrain what should have been a tribute to a successor of Peter. Um, during the funeral mass, Pope Francis offered but one fleeting reference to Pope Emeritus Benedict during the course of his very brief homily. I'll play that for the audience. And God's faithful people gathered here now accompanies and entrusts to him the life of the one who was their pastor. And Pope Francis concluded his homily, Benedict, faithful friend of the bridegroom. May your joy be complete as you hear his voice now and forever. He only mentioned Benedict's name at the end of the homily. That was it. What was the reaction from bishops and cardinals in attendance, Ed? Well, I think uh, apparently uh, from sources within the Vatican, there was uh, they got a, an advanced copy of it last night, and they were pretty shocked by it, um, the, some of them at least. Uh, they, they thought it wasn't enough tribute to, to, to Benedict. And, and I looked up the, the homily that... Um, Cardinal Ratzinger gave to, to John Paul II back in 2005, and it was full of references to John Paul and his achievements and a, and a real hearty tribute to him. Um, mm. This was much more implicit. I mean, you could argue that, the, the, that he was sort of uh, comparing um, Benedict to fulfilling uh, the, the, the vows that he took to, for consecrated life and that it was a sort of implicit tribute in that sense. But on the other hand, it was just one reference, and it was so different to the other one. Of course, John Paul and Benedict were close collaborators and friends, um, but at the same time, it doesn't match the, the words that we've heard from Francis, that you know, he, he held him in great esteem and saw him as a grandfather and, yeah. and all of that. Um, so there's a slight anomaly there. But you know, it's, some say it was a great tribute, some don't. I, I tend to go with the latter. I think it was um, a deliberate omission, really, to, to remember all the great things that Benedict did, all the great teachings, yeah. all the great writings, all the all the things that he did, being a, a reluctant pope that he was. Yeah. No, I, I mean, uh, you can't really separate John Paul II and Benedict's reigns. I mean, they really, this really is a 35-year project. And, and I thought, when I watched this homily, I kept thinking back to that beautiful moment when Benedict saluted his friend, uh, John Paul, Karol Wojtyla, and he said, I look up to the balcony there at the window and I still see him giving his blessing. Holy Father, give us your blessing today. I mean, it was so uh, colorful. Uh, it, it invited the imagination and it touched people in a profound way. This homily, uh, I mean, it was kind of just perfunctory. It was sort of a parish mass homily, but we have to say that. Ed, there was also that moment where uh, Francis bid his final goodbye to Francis. This was an extraordinary moment. We'll put it on the screen. A successor to Peter bidding his predecessor goodbye. I mean, the weight of that moment. Uh, but I am told, and I've since read reports, that that moment almost didn't happen. What did you hear about that? Yes, I think that there was reports that he was getting... It was very cold today, and I think he felt he, he wanted to leave early. In fact, 
uh, he was persuaded to stay for that. He initially wanted to leave before that happened, the, the blessing of the coffin and, and the final farewell. Um, but he did, in the end, do that. Uh, but it, it's rather um, typical, unfortunately, of, of what's happened in the last few days, according to these reports, and from good sources that I've that have collaborated that, that uh, it's all been rather a little bit chaotic uh, behind the scenes, and, mm. and certain uh, uh, measures put in place didn't actually come to fruition, and, and certain things mm. that they wanted done weren't done. Uh, certain rules they put in place were then overturned and that sort of thing. So it was all rather a bit chaotic. But in the end, I think the funeral went pretty smoothly in the end. And I think people were certainly those, I think, who, the thousands who came uh, to pay their respects to Benedict uh, found it a, a very, um, I think, a, a simple but a, but worthy tribute in many ways to, to, mm -hmm. to him as a pontiff. Ed Penton, we will leave it there. Ed's reporting for the National Catholic Register can always be found at ncregister.com and on his blog. And be sure to pick up a copy of Ed's book, The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. Thank you, Ed. And now I want to bring back in the papal posse. Uh, as you know, gents, uh, I covered that conclave that elected Pope Benedict XVI with our, our dear friend, the late, great Father Richard John Newhouse. I'll, I'll bring you back for a moment down memory lane. Watch bell sounds at St. Peter's. How is one to distinguish between the bells of conf confirmation and the bells tolling the 15 minutes have passed? So we wait. Yes. I'm as frustrated as you are, <laughs> not more frustrated. If, so just hang tight. We'll have some confirmation in the coming moments. If I our hope. Lord had entrusted the church to angels, we wouldn't have this trouble. But there are bells. That is not the six o'clock bell. No. That but is. That's from the local church over here. Well, that was the word was Peter. that as soon as the word went out from the Holy See, all the churches of Rome would start ringing their bells. Right. Are we going to hear that? But the question I had when I heard that initially is how? Who's going to let them how know? How are all these little How's pastors that? spread throughout Rome to know when the world's media spending millions and with the, uh, know, jumping on top of Navarro balls at this hour? Raymond, at the risk of interrupting our chatter, it seems to me now that we have to say Abemus Papam. We have a pope. The smoke is white. No, there's no one is confirming this yet, and we will not either, Father. You can say that. Well, but I, I, I okay, no, I'm, I'm, uh... We have confirmation. It appears we do have a new pope. It appears. Abemus Papam. Abemus Papam, as best we can tell. Abemus Papam. Eminentissimum agreverendissimum dominum, dominum Josephum, Sancte Romane Ecclesiae, Cardinalem Ratzinger. Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger is the 265th Pope, the 264th successor to St. Peter. Richard was so, he could barely speak when those bells rang and Benedict's name was announced. What a day that was. Uh, the conclave crew and papal posse had not yet been born, but Father Richard sort of set the standard. Father Jerry, your thoughts on this day? What does the loss of the Pope Emeritus mean to you personally 
uh, and as a priest into the church? Well, he was a heroic figure for me. Uh, I always knew about him because he was the well-known, influential theologian, bishop, Archbishop of Munich, and then he came to Rome uh, to assist John Paul II as head of the Doctrine of the Faith, which is the most important Roman congregation, uh, because the mm -hmm. primary mission of the successor of Peter is to strengthen the faithful and to do so in teaching and example and holiness. Uh, and then you may remember that he gave an interview to uh, Vito Massori, uh, Italian journalist, uh, it came out as the Ratzinger Report. Father Fessio published right. it. And that was a yep. revolutionary book because here was a cardinal, or yes, he was a cardinal already, in the Roman Curious saying mm -hmm. that Catholicism is under assault uh, not only from exterior forces but also from a worldly spirit uh, within the church. And he was a, giving a clarion call to a renewal of faith uh, that book was very inspiring. I know that was one of the first hit books for Ignatius Press. Yeah. Uh, and as the Pontificate went, uh, as Pontificate John Paul II went along, what did we get? We got the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is one right. of the greatest gifts of the 20th century to the faithful. And uh, we also got probably the most important papal document, Veritatis Splendor, which was defending objective truth uh, in an age of skepticism. And those documents, along with some others, uh, showed that both John Paul II and uh, Joseph Ratzinger were dedicated to upholding the faith handed down from the apostles. And the modern age basically tells the Catholic Church, you've got to shed your claim to doctrinal truth. You have to say, well, we have our opinions, maybe you'll agree with us. No, these men said, what Christ teaches yesterday, today, and tomorrow is for us the truth. And our whole joy and purpose in life is to know the truth, to live the truth, and to proclaim the truth. Yeah, no, and he did such a beautiful job. And I'm so glad you mentioned the catechism because that got very scant mention, even in Catholic media. Uh, this was one of his great contributions. He edited that, that, that tome. It took years to assemble. People said he was crazy to even try to do it, he and John Paul. And it was really Ratzinger's handiwork. Bob, uh, Pope Benedict's final words were reportedly, Lord, I love you. What do those words tell you about the simple faith of Joseph Ratzinger and the kind of pope he was? Yeah, I'm not surprised at all that those were his last words, because brilliant theologian that he was, you know, cultivated gentleman, I think is the word we ought to use about him, that he was. Uh, he often spoke, even at the end of magnificent writings or lectures that he gave, about how the, the faith actually is the faith of God's faithful people, the kind of faith that he learned from his own mother and father um, in Bavaria growing up. And he remained faithful to that throughout his whole life and would always refer back to it, even as bishop, as cardinal, or as pope, he would refer back to that because the faith is not only intended for intellectuals. It's very clear that, that he may very well be the greatest intellectual who ever occupied the throne of Peter. But at the same time, he was a leader who kept turning us back to that simplicity. And at the same time, I believe he was addressing the most urgent problems that exist within the church and, and without. Within the church, the divisions, you know, the, his attempt to bring back the Latin Mass was an attempt at what he called mutual enrichment, so that what was old mm -hmm. and what was new could combine into a, a fruitful development. He was very urgent right. in dealing with 
the, the uh, abuse problem. Okay, uh, Bob, you're getting way ahead of me. You're taking away all of our topics. So I'm going to stop you because I got to pace you. You're like a horse. I got to hold you back so you run your paces later. So hold on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up here. Perhaps Benedict's greatest contribution and achievement of the pontificate is that so-called reform of the reform you mentioned. Um, here's what he told me when serving as Cardinal Ratzinger at the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Take a look at this and I want your reaction. You have spoken about the reform of the reform, reforming the reform. How do you see that actuating? Generally, I would say it was not well implemented, the liturgical reform, because it was a general idea now. Liturgy is a thing of the community. The community is representing himself. And so with the creativity of the priest or of the, of the uh, groups uh, they will create their own liturgies. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to restore not so much uh, certain ceremonies, but the essential idea of liturgy. Will we see a return to uh, the ad orientum posture, facing the, the priest facing away from the people during the canon, uh, a return to the Latin, mm -hmm. more Latin in the Mass? Uh, versus Orientum, I would say, could be a help because it's really a tradition from the apostolic time and uh, is uh, not only uh, a norm, but is expression also of the cosmical dimension and of the historical dimension of the liturgy. That really is the entire thrust of Benedict's vision for the prayer of the Church and its future. Bob, your thoughts then, Father Jerry. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a man who understands the fullness of our tradition. So he knows that, that even as the church has to face things now, and he was brilliant in his analysis of what was going on in the church and, and in the world right now, we also continue to draw the greatest strength by remaining faithful to what the church has been in the past. So this, this mutual enrichment that he talked about is the most, uh, I think it's the culmination of the vision of, of uh, Benedict, that um, you are open to new influences, you have to you have to deal with new things, but at the same time you can remain faithful. It's it's one of the things that that liberals and conservatives try to sort the things into this or to that. I think that he brought things together in into in a center and was misunderstood about this, but it, it, it was perhaps the most mm -hmm. fruitful attempt to to reunite the church in modern times. Father Jerry, uh, can the new restrictions placed on the traditional Latin Mass, will that stop the renewal that Benedict began with Samorum Pontificum? Well, the restrictions imposed by Pope Francis are something that we've discussed before. I find them regrettable. I agree with Pope Benedict that you can have side by side in a parish the traditional Latin Mass and then the Novus Ordo Mass. Uh, they mutually enrich each other. Uh, they are not contradictory. Most people who go to the Latin, traditional Latin Mass are very loyal to the Holy See. They do not reject Vatican II. In other words, they're not a source of disunity. Uh, so yeah. the Pope has that ex uh, belief, and I would just respectfully disagree with it. The future will depend on what the next Pope decides, because, of course, what one Pope restricts, another can unrestrict. On a broader scale, though, I think what we're seeing is what Pope Benedict understood, uh, that the implementation of the liturgical reform after the Second Vatican Council did not take into account the experiential uh, aspect of divine worship. It was a very didactic mm -hmm. and professorial approach, and it turned into something that did not inspire so many people. That's why there's such a demand for the old Mass. 
Uh, Pope yeah. Benedict's writings, especially on the ad orientem, uh, they will continue to fructify and to be a source of inspiration for younger priests uh, as the years go on. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I see young priests. Well, you saw it in the crowd there. It was all young clergy. They, they are reading Ratzinger. They are imbibing that, and he's shaping their interior life and their liturgical vision. So I, I, everybody, I think, should just take a pause on what might happen with the future of the liturgy, because, uh, you know, lived experience as a way of kind of trumping, you know, edicts or momentary gestures. Uh, given his love of the mission to restore the liturgy, what do you make of Pope Francis's decision to break with tradition at the Requiem Mass, the funeral mass for Pope Benedict, and omit the Roman canon, which is the ancient first Eucharistic prayer? Um, by the way, the gospel was also not chanted in Latin. What was the message here, Father Jerry? Well, um, what can I say? Uh, the, the Roman liturgy means the liturgy of the Church of Rome. Uh, and then that spread out to all the places where missionaries brought the Missal. So the Roman Missal only had one canon. That was what we call the Roman canon. So to omit that at the funeral of the former Bishop of Rome, I think, was a mistake. Um, but given that being said, uh, it's the third Eucharistic prayer, which was used, is very beautiful. It's a good thing. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we noticed there was traditions were cast aside here. Um, you know, it, it was regrettable that uh, they only had two official governmental uh, representations uh, at the request of the Vatican, because uh, eight years of pontificate cannot be forgotten uh, that this man was the ruler of the Catholic Church and deserve the honors that we accord to, you know, presidents who have left office or abdicated kings, things of that sort. Uh, it's a small point, but um, I'm not a big—the age of informality trumps everything. You know, I like people who wear jackets and ties when they go to work. I like it when ambassadors show up at formal occasions, they're dressed formally. And I think it would have been more appropriate. But uh, decision-making at that level uh, decided otherwise. Yeah, well, given Benedict's particular sensitivities to music and the liturgy and the richness of, of the, the, the uh, patrimony of the church in the arts, it, it was a bit spare, I have to say, as a funeral. I, I felt it was um, a little narrow in its, in its uh, not only in its vision, but the way it played out, which didn't, it didn't disrespect him, but it was less than I think he should have been accorded. Uh, gentlemen, perhaps the most criticized aspect of Benedict's pontificate, uh, you'll see this in a lot of the articles, uh, is his handling of the sex abuse crisis. Here's what Benedict said himself in 2008 in Australia. Listen. Here, I would like to pause to acknowledge the shame which you have all felt as a result of the sexual abuse, abuse of minors by some clergy and religious in this country. Indeed, I am deeply sorry for the pain and suffering the victims have endured. Uh, Bob, let's talk a bit about this. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI. I think, has been judged unfairly regarding the abuse crisis. This is a guy who personally defrocked uh, Father Maciel of the Legionnaires of Christ, took away his, his uh, practice of faith anyway, and sent him to a monastic life, laicized over 800 priests. He spoke of the filth in the Church. Your take on his record vis-a-vis -vis sex abuse. Well, I, I think it's as good as it could possibly have been in the time that he was operating. And when he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, he pushed very, very hard 
for the church to address those problems. John Paul actually was a little bit more reluctant, as you know, because in, mm. um, in communist times in Poland, uh, sexual abuse by priests was an excuse that the regime often used to discredit the church. So John Paul II wasn't, wasn't as prepared to listen to the victims and, and the truth about what was happening. But Ratzinger, very early on as cardinal, was pushing very hard. And of course, when he became pope, he even did more. Um, we still don't know exactly what he did in terms, for example, of uh, Cardinal McCarrick. We know that he, re he restricted him and wanted him to you know, go into a life of prayer and retirement. And then, in some fashion or, or another, Pope Francis rescinded those restrictions. But he was even willing to take on a major figure like Cardinal McCarrick, who was very influential in the church during the period that he mm -hmm. was active. So, look, you could look back, and some people tried to nitpick at, at the way that he had handled a couple of cases when he was the Cardinal Archbishop in, in Bavaria. Uh, those proved ultimately to be false charges against him. And it's because uh, a lot of people don't like him that they think that he didn't do a good job. He did the best job of any major leader that we had in the church in the period in which he lived. Yeah, and Father Jerry, um, people forget because they didn't cover this as closely as, frankly, we have. Uh, and, and I remember when, the, when, you know, we had the first sex abuse scandal here in the United States in the early 2000s. It was Benedict who insisted, even over John Paul II and many around him, that there be a zero-tolerance policy and that the competency for laicizing priests and investigating these cases be brought to his desk at the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. He took this filth that he saw in the church very personally. Yes, he did. And that was, and he preached the famous uh, Stations of the Cross uh, just before Pope John Paul II died back in 2005. And he used that expression, the filth in the clergy. Uh, he understood mm -hmm. the horrors of this criminal behavior by priests. And he did take steps to remove priests, to strengthen the uh, procedures that were being used. Now, on the McCarrick case, I have to say, I think he made a mistake. Uh, if you read the, McCa the uh, McCarrick report produced by the Holy mm -hmm. See, um, it's revealed that he was, McCarrick was placed under restriction, but not publicly. And Cardinal Burke, I agree with him, he said, no, he should have, there should have been a decree uh, implementing mm -hmm. penalties. Then everybody would have known that the Holy See found that this man was guilty. He never could, therefore, right. have continued in his public activities. Now, why did Benedict do that? We don't know directly, but we can speculate that he felt that a private uh, punishment would curb McCarrick and prevent further abuse. What we know is mm -hmm. McCarrick ignored those uh, private uh, restrictions, continued to travel, present himself as a, you know ordinary cardinal in good right. standing. Uh, this, as a canon lawyer, I say this all the time. Uh, if you do not follow the public law of the church and issue decrees when you've come to decisions about bad bishops, priests, and cardinals, you're not fulfilling the norms of justice. And that has to be done. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the Zanchetta case right now under Pope Francis, where he is still under canonical investigation after he's been uh, convicted in a civil court. Zanchetta has not right. been thrown out of the priesthood, even though he's found guilty of sexually abusing seminarians in his own native Argentina. So, uh, you know, we, if we're going to look at sexual abuse, this is a matter like all criminal justice. If it's not handled publicly, then things are not going right. Yeah, well, this is just like that other case of the, the, the Jesuit uh, iconographer, uh, you know, who was apparently excommunicated and 
Pope Francis lifted the excommunication and he was preaching a, a Lenten retreat. None of this makes sense, but we'll get to that at another time. Uh, gentlemen, uh, I'm going to break here for a moment. We'll go to Father Sirico, Robert Sirico, who's joining us now from Rome. Father, I'm so glad you're there. You were fortunate to spend time with the late Pope Benedict. What were those occasions like for you? And what do you remember most about him? Well, I think it's his conciseness, his gentleness, his um, willingness to hear you, and uh, just his humility. Uh, this has been said over and over again by people who knew him much better than I did. Um, I'm just so impressed with the the enormity of his intellect and the contribution he's made to the church. Mm-hmm. Father, Pope Benedict's resignation will always be one of the hallmarks of his papacy. Um, when I interviewed him as Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was head of the CDF, he spoke about his desire to step down, to retire. Watch this. You've been here for 21 years in this post, and I, I've read in many reports you wanted to retire several times. Why are you still here? <laughs> yes, I had uh, decided to retire in 1991, uh, 2001, uh, because uh, I have the idea I could write some books and return to my studies, as Cardinal Martini did. Right. So it was my idea to do the same thing. But from the other hand, seeing the suffering Pope, I cannot say to the Pope, I will retire, I will write my books. <laughs> uh, seeing him, how he is getting himself, I have to continue. Uh, as you know, Father Sirico, once he got the big seat, he didn't continue. Your thoughts about those words, um, how yeah. he became in some ways the suffering Pope that John Paul II once was, in a different way, and what's the lasting significance of this act? Well, uh, I think it's very unfortunate that this is going to be a, a major part of his legacy because there's so much more to who he was and what he did, what he said, what he wrote, even uh, as Pope, what he wrote. Mm -hmm. I, I, like many people, feel that it was regrettable that he resigned because I, I think up until last week, I think he could have been still uh, running the church. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, look, 10 years he was in, in the backyard, in the Vatican Gardens. Uh, only eight years he was pope. But he also had this thing, Father, and I saw this when I was with him on several occasions. He was very tender about his health. Uh, now, I know he had strokes, uh, minor strokes and a heart yes. condition. But, you know, I, I remember being one time with him, and, and he said, oh, I, I cannot talk at length today. I have a little scratchy throat, and it could be something worse, <laughs> you know? So he was always kind of— uh, very worried that the health was going to no, take him down, exactly. even when he was archbishop, you know, in, in uh, Germany in the, in the 70s, he complained about this. Give me your thoughts, yes. though, on how Ratzinger, later Benedict, complemented the papacy of John Paul II. How did those visions for the church overlap? Well, on, on the delicacy point, let, let me just uh, mm -hmm. note, it, okay. when you see him when he comes on the balcony when he was elected, as he holds his hands up, you can see that he still has a black sweater on underneath his papal uh, wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. So he, he was con <laughs> concerned right. about the chill of the night. And believe me, it was not nearly as cold as it was in the piazza today. But yeah. um, I, I think that this uh, 
papacy is like an acorn. It's going to take a lot of time to unpack this because he was so concise in the way he said things. It's the simplicity, which is the other side of complexity. He, um, I was working on a book on the parables and used some of his writings as I was doing my own work and my own research, and I realized he had read everything that I had studied to prepare for it mm. and said it so much more concisely and eloquently than I would be able to. I, I think that represents the entirety of his uh, pontificate, at least the intellectual side. Uh, remember that he added the theological dimension to John Paul's philosophical dimensions, and so I think mm. it, it was like a one-two pontificate, so to speak, and that they had worked together for so long and knew each other so well, and that uh, Benedict yielded to uh, John Paul's request that he stay on. Uh, I think we're yeah. all blessed and so much more fortunate for it. You're, you're, you're so right. And look, I, I agree with you. I think uh, had, he, had he stayed the course, you know, Gonswain even said that during the sex abuse crisis, Benedict was so determined to create a zero-tolerance policy, to review all of those cases. And he, he expelled 800-plus priests from the priesthood who had been malefactors. He was so determined and courageous, and yet, Gonswain said he could have used some of that late in his papacy. And I thought that was an interesting admission, um, that maybe he should have stayed the course and followed John Paul's example, that the father never leaves the family, which is yeah. something he told me, you know, uh, a couple of times, actually. Father, Pope Benedict was also known as the pope who restored the old rite. He permitted a wide celebration of the traditional Latin mass, uh, for a time, at least, until Pope Francis placed restrictions on it. When I interviewed Cardinal Ratzinger in 2003, he was already planning this restoration, at least in his head. Here's what he had to say about liturgical abuses and how the old rite could enrich the new. I think generally uh, the old liturgy was never prohibited. We need only norms how in peace uh, apply it so that the Reformed liturgy is the normal liturgy of the community of the Church, but the author is always a valid liturgy of the Church, can be used but in obedience to the bishops and to the Holy Father. Mm -hmm. And that's a, tr a great challenge, I know, in some parts of the Church and in other parts of the Church. Uh, they've embraced uh, the Pope's call for a more yes, frequent uh, yes. practice. I think of the it's old important to, to be open to this possibility and to uh, demonstrate so also the continuity of the Church. We are today not another Church as uh, 500 years ago. It's always mm -hmm. the same Church and was in one time holy for the Church, it's always holy for the Church, and it's not in another time an impossible thing. Father Benedict once said, nothing works if the liturgy is no longer itself. Uh, you celebrate the traditional Latin Mass. Could Zamorum Pontificum be Benedict's greatest gift to the Church, even though Pope Francis's legislation has restricted it? Uh, well, uh, the truth of his his remarks are seen in my own life. I mean, uh, I celebrate both forms, the parish that I was at uh, moves in great continuity between the two, and there's not this rupture, this idea of rupture. So it, it has enhanced and enriched my own celebration of the new Mass. Um, I think it certainly will be one of the great uh, marks of his pontificate. Uh, what unfolds in the years to come is going to determine the um, the 
what should we say, the size of that contribution, because if it becomes normativized again in future years, I think it'll just be seen as a smooth path to, with just a few bumps in the way. Mm -hmm. Father Robert Sirico, always great talking to you. Uh, thank you for joining us. And you can follow Father's work at the Acton Institute at acton.org. We'll see you soon, Father. Well, I say that. I want to bring the papal posse back in. Uh, this subject of the old right, I don't want to keep returning to this, but this is important. The prefect of the papal household, former personal secretary to Pope Benedict, uh, Georg Gonswein, has, has been interviewed, and he was asked if the retired pope had read the new restrictions on the old right by Pope Francis. Listen to this. Das hat er als Emeritus noch erlebt, als das Motu Proprio Traditiones Custodes von Franziskus erschien. Hat ihn das enttäuscht? Das war schon ein Einschnitt. Ich glaube, dass Papst Benedikt also dieses Motu Proprio gelesen hat, mit Schmerz im Herzen, weil er wollte ja gerade denen helfen, sozusagen den inneren Frieden zu finden, auch den liturgischen Frieden, um sie von Lefebvre wegzuziehen, die eben in der alten Messe einfach eine Heimat gefunden haben. Und ich meine, die alte Messe, wenn man überlegt, wie viele Jahrhunderte die alte Messe, also auch für viele Menschen einfach auch die Quelle des geistlichen Lebens, Nahrung für viele Heiligen, kann man, nicht, kann man sich nicht vorstellen, dass das also etwas ist, das, das also nichts mehr taugt. Diesen Schatz oder den Menschen diesen Schatz wegzunehmen, also es ist da bei mir nicht, ist mir nicht, nicht ganz wohl. Uh, Father Jerry, Bob, your thoughts. I'll start with you, Father. Uh, yeah, uh, Raymond, that confirms what I always suspected, that uh, this was something that really hurt Pope Benedict to see that uh, this really hallmark of his pontificate, the attempt to reconcile the followers of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, and then to support the desires of those who enjoyed uh, attending and, and being worshiping in the old forms, that somehow all of that now is cast aside. Um, I think Archbishop Genschwein expresses my opinion on this matter. Uh, those who have come to know and love the Lord by going to Latin Mass should not have that taken away from them. Well, Bob, we heard it earlier when, when Cardinal Ratzinger told me, you can't, what was once holy remains holy in the church. You know, you don't just cast it aside. What does this do to this idea of the hermeneutic of continuity? I keep hearing this, even in Catholic media, oh, nothing has changed, nothing has changed. The people know that's just not true in some places, including the liturgy. Yeah, a, a theologian friend of mine uh, pointed out that, that uh, Ratzinger once said that, the, that people have turned wine into water and they pretend that that's a journamento. And I think that that absolutely applies <laughs> to the liturgy, that, that, you know, we've got a very watered down, very flat, in most cases, it can be said reverently and, and in a way that inspires people. But again, mm -hmm. you know, I think the reason why he had this pain in his heart, which is really a more literal translation of what Gonsfein said mm -hmm. about, about the way he read Tradiciones Custodes, that, that um, the pain really, I think, at bottom is that it introduced a division where he had tried to introduce renewed unity with, with, with a broadening and an opening, that, that dialogue that he liked to have within the church itself. So, you know, we, we now have a division that is going to have to be repaired that was based, let's be frank about this, on a false polling of the bishops of the world. The bishops of the world were not demanding a restriction of the Latin mass. No. Most of them didn't respond to the poll. Very few seemed to be upset that people were getting 
uh, radicalized or opposed to so-called Vatican II. Uh, I think at the bottom for him, the the, the heart, the the uh, heartfelt uh, pain that he had was that his church again was being divided where he had tried to unify it. Yeah, no, it's such a great point. And unity was always such a focus for Benedict and, of course, his love of the liturgy because it's how the church prays. And he believed as the church prays, so the church is. And, and, and uh, that, that's a proper analysis. Joining me now, a former student of Professor Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI's publisher at Ignatius Press, Father Joseph Fessio. Father Fessio, thank you for being here. I want to get your take on the thought of Pope Benedict XVI. You published so many of his books, including that trilogy on Jesus of Nazareth that he wrote during his papacy. What struck you most about those books and his take on the person of Christ, the historical person of Jesus that was so unique? Well, Raymond, he didn't write many books in his career, although we published many books with his name on them. And he was the author, but basically almost everything he wrote as a book was a collection of essays or homilies or articles he'd done, especially after he became a bishop, which he did not want to become. He had so much administrative work to do that he couldn't really sit down and write a full-length book. However, he did in the 1990s write what I think is his masterpiece, the Spirit of the Liturgy. And then as Pope, he wrote as a book the three volumes, Jesus of Nazareth, as you mentioned, yes. And what made them unique with his take on Jesus? And he was really taking on that historical critical analysis that had so undermined uh, not only theology, but biblical scholarship for so many years, Father. Yes. You know, I, I, another former student, his Father Vincent Tui, a good friend of mine, made the point that because he had these administrative duties, he couldn't do all the theological work he wanted to do. And so what he has done is he's put out sketches and uh, points of reflection that students for centuries after this can develop. Uh, so he's kind of a source for them. But what, what's unique about him, of course, everyone, we're all unique. Even you're special, you know, Raymond. Uh, <laughs> but he... Uh, he not only knew theology and philosophy, but he had deep uh, reading awareness, you know, understanding of history, theology, mm -hmm. uh, literature, music, art. And so he, he was a great synthesizer and a great listener. And so he, he, he kind of uh, brings together these streams of the whole patristic and medieval thought into a modern expression. He was a great synthesizer. And I, no, by the way, right. oh, well, uh, I I was, Father de Lubac was my mentor in France. He was the one that suggested I do my theology doctorate on Balthasar and that I do it with Rassinger. So I did. Uh, and I, at that time, because Rassinger was the youngest of the three, I thought Rassinger was sort of a, you know, popularizer, that Balthasar and de Lubac were the great, you know, fathers of the modern church. But I was surprised. I mean, he was phenomenal. Before he was Pope, when he began to repeat himself a bit, I never heard him give a homily or a class where I didn't learn something new. It was always something, you know, coming from that tremendous bubbling source, if you will, of insight. Yeah. I'm so glad you touched on that, Father. His, he was such a man of culture. He understood the, cult, the, the patrimony of music, of uh, theology, literature, and he sort of brought all of that to bear. In addition to that sharp eye that you mentioned, I, you know, in talking to him, as you did many more times than I did, 
I was always struck. He'd ask you a question. You'd go into a long answer, and then he would crystallize it, make the argument better than you could, and then, of course, refute and undermine everything you just said. Nobody was like—he <laughs> had such a clear mind. The grasp of that mind is really uh, unique, uh, as you said earlier. Now, there have been some who criticize uh, Benedict in the wake of his passing. Uh, I want to play this fellow Jesuit to you, Father Thomas Reese, who wrote in American Magazine this week, or America Magazine, by electing the smartest man in the room, the cardinals had chosen someone who was not interested in listening to people who had other views. A smart leader surrounds himself with people who supplement his weaknesses, not with people who always agree with him. Benedict XVI's great failing was surrounding himself with acolytes who would never challenge him and would insulate him from challenge. Your reaction to that, how do you feel about that assessment? How I feel is irrelevant. What I can tell you about it is it's absolutely 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the truth. And here's an example. Uh, in our seminars, we had Carl Reiner would give a seminar to his students, and he would peak the whole time. When Rasher gave a seminar, he made us all speak. He said very little until the very end. And just as you said, he would take everything we'd said and summarize it in one or two beautiful sentences, giving it the right context and making us sound better than we were. He was a great, great listener. Uh, and he, he didn't surround himself with yes men like Father Reese probably does for himself, and like certainly Pope Francis has done. But he 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 wanted to get views from everybody he could, and anybody who worked with him uh, knows that he was very, very open to other points of view. And then he weighed things and made a decision. He obviously had to make the final decision. That was his role. Yeah. No, no, you're so right. I mean, and, and we, we remember that that historic meeting with Hans Kung, whom he yes. had to discipline as CDF head, a former colleague. They have this meeting that was very emotional. That is the mark. And you see that again and again, meeting with the Islamic uh, uh, Federation and uh, after uh, the Regensburg speech. Benedict was always open to dialogue and hearing other points of view and, and even confronting them with the gospel as he understood it and saw it. So I I think this is an empty charge, and I agree with you. I wish everyone were as open to listening to criticism the way Benedict did. You know, Raymond, we know that the, any bishop, including the Bishop of Rome, has three munera, or roles, priest, prophet, and king. Now, as pope, of mm. course, his governing was most in view, and a lot of people criticize that. That will be forgotten very, very soon. What will not be forgotten is the priest and prophet, the teaching, which I think will be seen as uh, part of a golden age of the church. I believe that the Lubach, Balthasar, and Resch will become fathers of the modern church. They will be a, just like Basil, Gregory, and Gregory of Nyssa uh, were in the fourth century. This will be looked upon a time of tremendous light in the midst of darkness. Uh, no question about it. I mean, anybody who's familiar with his writing knows this is powerful, it's beautiful, it's deep, it's spiritual. His theology on his knees. Father Joseph Fessio, as always, thank you for being here. All right. God bless you, Raymond. Joining me now from Rome is journalist, historian, and friend of the late Pope Benedict XVI, Paul Body. Paul, your thoughts on Pope Benedict. Tell me uh, about the man you knew, the personal side of him. I mean, you knew the Pope not as someone you were covering, but also as a friend. It's a friend and as a neighbor, you know, which makes a difference. Mm. Ah. So from very close range, yeah. 
What do the media miss about this man that you saw up close? The media, he's media is missing the entire person. He was such a, I mean, repeat again and again how humble he was, how, how, and how beautiful he was, I tell you. I mean, what shocked me really was, you know, first of all, I have to repeat what Colonel Pell said. I'm surprised how sad I am, because I should be glad that he's been relieved from all his sorrows and all his pain from the way of Via Crucis and from the purgatory he had to suffer the last years, I suppose. When I was with him, I was always struck by his brilliant and wry sense of humor. Um, I, I remember when we did uh, an, an early interview, and uh, there were media people. I guess he had written his autobiography by this point. And they asked him, w why didn't you include any romances or being in love with any girls? And he turned to the reporter and said, well, I had to keep it to 100 pages, so I was limited. You know, that, that kind of dry, dry understatement, he was yeah. just delightful. He was so innocent. And he was like a child. Mm. He was very humorous. He was very... He was a, he was like a little, he was a little prince to me. Paul, I love that you mentioned that the Pope in your mind was like a little prince, like a little child, because of that innocence. And I, I recall one time we were talking, and he said, uh, I said, you know, you're such a, a, a you're, you're maybe the greatest theologian in the world. He, and he, he, he swatted my hand, and he said, I am the little Pope. And I was, I was struck by that, that he saw himself as the little Pope. You know, when yeah. so many of us see him as, as part of, uh, I think he and John Paul as this, these two colossuses. Now, today, we buried the European church with him. He was the last, mm. we say it in German, Abendländer, Abendländer, the Occident. He was, he was Europe in itself. He was the last European on the throne. And today, wow. we, we buried that part of the church. No, it's certainly the end of an era, this 35-year uh, reign of uh, John Paul and Benedict and their efforts to bring clarity out of chaos. Paul Body, thank you for your memories and for being here. We look forward to your book. Finally, to close us out, I want to bring back the papal posse. Uh, Father Jerry, uh, this may have gotten missed by a lot of people, not by me. Um, you know, during Fox's coverage, I tried to bring it up, and, and I, I sent the, the images out throughout the coverage. Cardinal Joseph Zen got special permission to leave Hong Kong and attend this funeral, the funeral of the pope who made him a cardinal, against a lot of resistance, I might add. Your thoughts on that when you saw Cardinal Zen at the funeral? It was very moving because Cardinal Zen is being persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, sad to say, he's also not being listened to by Pope Francis and his uh, people who work with him in the Holy See and the Secretary of State. Cardinal Zen is horrified that the Communist Party in China has any role in naming bishops of the Catholic Church in China. But Pope Francis has agreed to the secret protocol that we know, the agreement. Now, recall that Pope Benedict issued a letter to the Church in China during his pontificate. And it's a beautiful statement. I would encourage people to go back and see it. Right. Uh, but in that case, it was part of his response because, again, there was an attempt to reach an agreement regarding legitimizing the, uh, the bishoprics and all in China. And Benedict would not sign an agreement that the Chinese Communist Party uh, would agree to. So here we have a sharp contrast in things that are being dealt with. Uh, and I think Cardinal Zen's uh, presence at that Mass is a sign of gratitude for what Benedict did. Uh, but it's also a continuing plea, because the fate of the Chinese people is not sealed. Uh, the, the Vatican recently complained because the Chinese uh, government uh, overruled them about a bishopric. 
it's time for Pope Francis and his assistants to say that the Chinese Catholics uh, in uh, China deserve the same rights as Catholics in France, Italy, and Spain, which is the Holy See names the bishops, and no political party has any role in that. Yeah. Bob, um, your thoughts on—and uh, I, I want to be mindful of time. The resignation of Pope Benedict has loomed so large, it gobbled up most of the conversation about him in the past week. Your thoughts on that resignation and the long-term implications of it? Yeah, you know, I looked very carefully at what uh, Archbishop Gonsfein said, which was that he just was exhausted. And mm -hmm. um, he, all, all, he said to Pope Benedict, look, we can get other people to take on certain duties. And he, the pope was adamant, no, I've arrived at this in prayer. It's not going to be discussed further. Even um, Archbishop uh, Jeevish, who was a secretary to John Paul II, said, you know, when you're placed on the cross, you don't take yourself off the cross. So two very important figures in the Vatican advised him not to do this, but he was adamant about it. Look, the, I, I talked with the Swiss Guards. I wrote a book about the Swiss Guards, so I knew them, and I asked them when we were all over in Rome in 2013 for the, the conclave right. crew, as we were then, what did they think about it? And they said he was just so physically exhausted that they understood it. He could barely incense the altar. But the question is, why was he physically exhausted? Why, what were the things, you know, the many things within the, the Vatican itself that, that tired him out so deeply that he felt he couldn't cope with them any longer? And that's what we're going to need to know in the future. And uh, I hope this doesn't set a precedent, because I really think that John Paul II set a kind of an ideal that even in modern times, when a pope, unless he becomes incapa utterly incapacitated, ought to, ought to ex exist in that role right to the end and be a father to us uh, as he's been elected to be. Yeah, and, and Father, as we've commented here over and over again, there were consequences for that, for that resignation. Uh, despite the personal uh, lack of strength, the weakness that Benedict XVI felt, I've even spoken to uh, cardinal intimates, I won't say too much here, that he, he actually thought, given the last conclave, that somebody like Scola, you know, Cardinal Scola would take his place. And therefore, the resignation didn't seem such a, such a big deal. There are consequences. No, it was a miscalculation. You may recall that he, Cardinal Scola was transferred from Venice to Milan, which is a sign of papal favor. And uh, uh -huh. Milan, of course, was where Pope Paul VI came from. So, uh, yes, you know, I, I say uh, I, I wish that he had stayed in office because I loved him as pope. I sympathize with him. Um, but in divine providence, he made a decision, and now you know, the life of the Church continues. But I think what Bob said is true. This should not become a precedent. The, being pope yeah. is not primarily being a manager. And when you get too old, you can't manage well. Being pope is being the father of all Christians on earth, the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the vicar of Christ has assistance to help him. So I hope, you know, I don't want Pope Francis to resign. Uh, I don't think that would be a good thing. This should not become the norm. Yeah. Uh, rather, bishops are fathers, and we don't throw the father out of the house or ask him to leave or even let him wander off. You know, we help him yeah, when difficulties yeah. arise. Well, and John Paul became such an icon of the church and Christ's suffering and the power of that, even into his very last moments. And I, and I, and I think to, to deny the church that, that meditation on old age and suffering and what that, and, and what that means in the church and in the world, I think may, with you, it may have been a miscalculation. I want to end on something that Cardinal Ratzinger told me when I asked him about the future of the church. Listen to this. 
What do you see, Your Eminence, as the great danger and the great hope in the church today? See, the great danger is that we would be only a social uh, association and not uh, founded in the face of the Lord. Mm -hmm. uh, for the first moment, it seems important only what we are doing, and the face appears not so important. But if uh, disappears the face, all the other things are discomposed, as we have mm -hmm. seen. So mm -hmm. I think the uh, danger in this time with all these activities and the external visions is to underestimate the importance of faith and mm -hmm. to lose the faith, even a church where the faith would not be so essential. Right. The great hope is that uh, the Lord is, uh, we see a new presence of the Lord. We can see that uh, the sacramental presence of the Lord in Eucharist uh, is an essential gift uh, for us and give us also the uh, possibility to love the others and to work for the others. Mm -hmm. so I think the new presence of the Eucharistic Christ and the new love for Christ and Christ present in the Eucharist is the most encouraging element of our time. Uh, gentlemen, your reaction to that, the, that vision, again, going back to the person of Jesus Christ. Bob, I'll start with you. Yeah, again, I think that this is the, the sort of the, the uh, main line of what he'd always thought. Even in his earliest writings back in the 1950s, when people thought that he was kind of, um, you know, departing from the, the tried and true principles of Thomism and whatnot, he wanted to, to reinvigorate a personal appropriation of those truths. He said, you know, you can believe all these truths, but if they are not living in your life, if you're not actually living them and the church is not living them, they, they, they aren't really what they're doing what they're supposed to be. So, uh, I'm absolutely convinced that he was right about that, and then that marks his entire uh, public life as professor, as po as as our, our Archbishop Cardinal, and as as Pope. And you know, ultimately, I think he believed that with Jesus, that seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. If we we yeah. try, we want to be a social agency, or we, we want to promote, you know, environmentalism or justice or whatever it is, that's a good thing too. But the church must first be the church, and then those things will be inspired in a different way than the world inspires them. Yeah, no, it's, it's a school of salvation. Salvation is from believing the Word and living it. No, and he was immersed in the Word of God and, and had such a deep, simple, but true belief that moving with that Word, immersing yourself in it, can change the world. And it did, and it does. So we will leave it there, gentlemen, a wonderful place to end. For more commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray, visit CatholicThingTheCatholicThing.org. And may dear Pope Benedict rest in peace. He is now joining the other 149 popes buried around St. Peter in the grottos of the Vatican. Um, uh, of, and occupying the tomb of his friend and the man with whom he did so much good for the church and the world, John Paul II. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. I'm so glad you joined us. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. May Benedict XVI rest in peace. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.